Okay, I have to ask, why is there a Crudes poster behind you? Oh, if you don't know why, you ain't a fan. Really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> where's why that simple though? where's that simp emoji now, Cole? Where is it? <laughs> but why? Story. I haven't even seen that movie. I don't really remember the origin of why it's here. I don't know why it's here, no, but um we just like refer to ourselves as being classic <laughs> crudes on previous episodes because we're some mm. we're some primitive human beings when we yeah. do this recording shit. You know how it is. We had, we definitely have Neanderthal sized brains. So yeah, exactly. I think we just watched the movie and then we really liked it and it was pretty mm. stupid. We like related us. to the characters we- pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> You, you hadn't seen that kind of representation before and you just really felt, exactly. felt that's, seen. We, that's what we were <laughs> waiting for. Me me watching Call Me By Your Name is you watching The Croods. Exactly. That's like the, <laughs> the comparison here. Yeah. I don't know if I can come. I don't know if I can relate <laughs> Timothy Chalamet to, to, Eve, to Eve and Guy, bro. <laughs> but you know what? It works. It works. <laughs> they're, they're basically the same. Yeah. gentlemen fish welcome to this week's episode of odd fish starring a very very special guest possibly and rich and i were just talking about this before you got on but possibly the closest thing we'll ever have to a celebrity guest so everybody give a big uh clap your flippers out here for our guest cole bennett cole tell us a little bit about yourself (laughs) well what's up guys um you know, I really took a, a took a cut from my pay grade uh, for typical events like this. If you're on the show. Um, you know, times are tough. Charity is necessary. We got to spread the love. And I'm really happy to be on the show with you guys. Um, I'm still yeah, dying so I'm, and clap your flippers. <laughs> yeah, clap your flippers. The, the, the fish motif, it needs to keep going. The fish, we, we love it um but yeah hey guys i'm cole um go to school with these two been in uh studios together it's been a great time um and i'm i'm just really interested in uh social justice i honestly think that's the most important stuff to know about me all right i mean cole you know he's just being modest about it i mean the social justice thing is probably true but (laughs) we should also add (laughs) that cole is a young excellent if you will prodigy uh master of the design arts really um and when we when we first had our studios with him he he was sunning us big time right cole he was like he was like our our studio father and uh and (laughs) and to this day partially the only reason i still try in school is because i'm trying to live up to the precedent set by this young man right in front of us today so that's an introduction bro my eyes are watering a little bit (laughs) i think the best way i would describe it is that nav and i are kung fu panda and cole is master uguay oh yeah 100 100 (laughs) oh my showed us the way he showed us he showed us what he's capable of and now we we were just some fat noodle makers before we met cole (laughs) now we're skinny noodle makers (laughs) 
the the I hope the number of animated children's movies references grows as the podcast goes on because we've hit two now. Yeah, I, I, hope, yeah. I really I'm hope so. Yeah. And we have Mike and Sully in a previous episode yes, too. Like it's only yes. getting worse. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot. I hope it gets bigger. Yeah. Um, but wow, you speak too kindly. Wow. <laughs> um, so Cole, oh. um, why are you here today? What are you? Uh, what are you here for, bro? Other than the charity, of course. Uh, yeah. Other than. The- yeah. <laughs> Other than uh, getting a tax deductible, um, <laughs> what am I here and for? And an oddfish sticker. Yeah. <laughs> Is that in the deal too? We'll see if it goes well. No idea. Does, it me, does it get me free pizza at Home Slice, like the I voted sticker or no? No, no, no. I don't yet. think we have that no. much clout. Get, you get free sushi. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Are we talking like Raku sushi or are we talking like raw downtown? Like what kind of sushi? We're talking it? straight from the kitchens of Uchi. <laughs> oh shit yeah all right all right yeah all right <laughs> um so why am i here uh this year's been crazy um i think we all know that and uh i have always considered myself to be uh for the most part a left-leaning person um politically and ideologically but this summer really you know pushed me uh, to keep growing. And, you know, sure. no matter how uh, well learned you think you are and how well um, uh, maybe adjusted you are to the social justice climate you think you are, you still have so much room to grow and it never, ever stops. And um, I thought after listening to the specifically like the, the podcast you guys had about climate change, um, about just how these you guys do a great job of having these conversations and how I thought this would be a really interesting conversation to have um, about intersectionality um, due to kind of the crazy mix of COVID-19, social justice, um, racial unrest, the presidency, this crazy cocktail we live in right now. So yeah, that's why I'm here. So we inspired you is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. There you go. Y'all See, folks, me. that's what happens when you listen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When you listen to Joseph, not us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just imagine yeah. how many people are going to be inspired by this one after it's done. <laughs> y'all's, y'all's guests, amazing. Amazing, you know? We get it, Cole. Yeah. We're, we're hoping we can keep that, keep that standard up high, but we'll, we'll see after okay. this one. Uh, why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what intersectionality is for some of our viewers that maybe don't know enough about it? Um, but yeah, just just the definition, what you see it as, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, so it is a it's a big topic, and I think it's really important to first know that it is a frame uh, to discuss things within. Um, and so it was um, first coined by a black feminist scholar. Um, Her name was uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and she coined the term intersectionality uh, to mean the complex and cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination combine, overlap, or most importantly, intersect um, and affect the experiences of marginalized people. So basically to sum that up, People have more than one identity and the discrimination people face in the world 
are based on the intersections and relationships between the multiple identities that everyone has. Um, because just to give an example, like, you know, there's men and women and the spectrum of genders in between, but then there's also white men, women, the spectrums in between, black men, women, the gender spectrum in between, yada, 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 for all ethnic groups, racial groups. Um, and then you can just compound it on top of that. You can put class, you can put sexuality, you can put, you know, you can just keep going forever and ever. And intersectionality allows us to not just look at someone and see them as a body that is one identity um, because that doesn't, that doesn't work. And we found that out specifically with how law is written in America. So, Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Very, very concise definition, holding up the standard of our guests already. <laughs> Happy to hear it. Uh, Rich, if you don't have uh, anything to add to it, we could get into uh, intersectionality in the current climate. Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Awesome. So I know you wanted to talk a little bit about intersectionality in the current climate and how it has to do with maybe something like climate change. I was thinking we could talk about that first because, and it does go into uh, the episode we did with Joseph just a little bit, but maybe focusing more on the, uh, the social aspect of it. Cause the reality is, although climate change is an issue that affects all of us, it doesn't affect all of us equally, right? Because yeah. there are those groups that don't have that financial fallback versus there's the, uh, the the one percent billionaires club just hanging out and kicking it no worries on them because they're just going to fly away on their tesla rockets when the world goes to <laughs> shit anyways so why don't you talk a little bit about how uh intersectionality relates to climate change yeah i mean all the rich people are going to go to mars and the moon and we're just going to be stuck here with uh all living in like i don't know duluth minnesota um, <laughs> the last haven for humanity on earth are you designing um, it? Yeah, actually, my project right now is in Duluth. Minnesota. Okay, then I'm then I'm, I'm, fine. I'm fine though. <laughs> I'm fine there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, how intersectionality, you know, can be used to examine climate change is like this is this is a broad stroke statement, but I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say uh -oh. it with my whole chest. Uh, climate change activism has primarily been with white activists and has mainly been around like save the polar bears or save the rainforest, um, save these like animals that you never interact with, um, do things for places really far away from you, specifically with the kind of guise of preserve nature so that we can continue to like look at it. So like, if you think about the national parks, for example, we love them, right? They're great, um, but they are example of how uh, we can look at climate and like the environment through a lens of people who have money to vacation to these parks can go look at it. Right. And then that is like, that's the climate to them. And so yeah, if yeah, they yeah. still exist and are fine, then it's like, well, why do I need to care about climate change? And so, yeah, like this kind of Sierra Club, I don't know, I don't want to come for anybody, but the like, <laughs> the like environmental movement has always been about like, yeah, preserving nature to look at that doesn't directly affect people. Um, and just to, just to like preface this, I think it's important to say that 
one, I'm not an expert in anything I'm talking about right now. Neither are and we, bro. Two, don't worry. Perfect. I came to the right place. <laughs> and two, uh, I'm focusing on America as a frame, the United States, um, because I have lived here. I know the most about it. And I think most of the research, reading, and learning I've done on this is within America. Like, it, I, I can't speak on climate change across the world. But um, anyway, so the, the climate movement has kind of failed um, to a degree get people, you know, passionate and up in arms about it. And then on the other side, climate change already directly impacts low-income neighborhoods, specifically um, Black communities, Indigenous communities, and then other um, communities of color. And so um, intersectionality plays a part in it because you can't ignore that. We, we've not been successful in climate change activism because we've mainly focused on the more white experience of climate change, of viewing nature and being able to experience nature. Whereas, for example, um, in Black communities in Louisiana, um, they're already experiencing climate change with rising tides um, along the coast. And they're already fighting it every single day. And, um, you know, we don't care. And I, by we, I mean the kind of the modern climate movement. Um, at least in the past, hasn't acknowledged that and acknowledged the fact that the reason why they're most affected is because of the discrimination Black communities face. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain this as a, as like just a one paragraph little thing, but no, race, it makes, what yeah, you're saying, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And as a wise man once said back in 2008, George Bush doesn't care about Black people. In, uh, in the response to Hurricane Katrina. Um, exactly. and, and say what you will about Kanye, but he was, he's always speaking his mind and sometimes he's spitting <laughs> facts with it. Um, yeah, no, yeah. But that, um, you know, great, great point as, you know, uh, climate change affects people differently. And I think you're, you're totally right about how um, the climate change activism has been focused mostly on the white experience of viewing nature versus the people who are like you were saying, living in places like Louisiana or, you know, Joseph talked about his, um, his experiences with hurricane Harvey. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Cause that, that is also, you know, attributed to climate change and that's happening uh, right here, right now. And that's also an issue that should be addressed as, um, as what it is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, for I, sure. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if the activism is, is, uh, is based on the sort of tangible tangible progress we can see on environmentalism and like the fight towards mm -hmm. climate change because the most of the time you see all these like commercials or or mm -hmm. ads or whatever that talk about climate change and you see those like pictures of polar bears and like really sad right. shit and you're like okay that's tangible stuff we can think about for climate change and how polar bears are becoming skinny like that's something <laughs> you can put on a pic on a right. poster and say damn right. that makes me yeah. feel sad i should do something about it but like then at the same iceberg right exactly yeah, 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 it, yeah. it's like it really gets you but then again like you're saying it's it's very it's not something that necessarily hits home for mm. the majority of people because it's not something that affects them on their day-to-day -day life or just right. as a cultural uh personal scene in their life whereas right. the things you're talking about uh which could be disaster relief after a hurricane or simply mm -hmm. uh, um 
the the water levels rising so that the the ocean sides are getting wiped out and maybe like indigenous mm. cultures or whatever that live next to water bodies no longer have homes or anything like that so there are certain things that climate change affects that actually affects people in way more tangible ways than seeing polar bears on a melting glacier but those are not necessarily the ones mm. that we that we shed light on and the ones that we yeah, use sure. as the front page cover of environmentalism right no no exactly um and i think um yeah i this is so much process yes uh, <laughs> i'm so excited to be talking about this um i've just been like absorbing all of this like uh knowledge and information and like teaching myself things and having you know getting taught things and like talking about this is so exciting i want to um, i want to ask you a question i know we might veer off of climate change yeah. but that's okay i think we got we got the gist of it at least um we can dive into it again but i want to ask you mm -hmm. a question about what you said in the beginning when you were opening about uh you know your your outlook on life before the COVID era and how you were saying you were leaning left but now you've sort of mm -hmm. the word you use i've been i've been growing what exactly mm -hmm. do you define as growing what did you mean by growing um i think i think that's a great question and i can define it as like a before and after um i think um I want to say this summer was like a period of just constant turmoil for me. And it's like what I was before then and what I am now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think growing is for me getting pushed further to the left. I mean, I can go into specifics, okay. but it's me realizing that the systems, uh, capitalism, uh, the free market. We hate the free market, bro. <laughs> hate the free as free as it is <laughs> uh, yeah um how they have been um the, the systems we live in today are not only bad but they can they're not sustainable for sure and they need to change and i think before the summer i was like you know like climate change is bad capitalism isn't great but like i'd love to you know still own how a house and you know like have my little slice of this capitalist <laughs> and then now i'm like what no i don't i don't want any of that like i don't even know what i want anymore i you know it's it's almost like being disenfranchised but also uh being kind of hopeful because now i feel like i have a language and a way to talk about uh, what I realize is super wrong about the system that we live in. Instead of just being complacent to it, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what is wrong, I guess. That, that, was, that was the growth, I feel like. That's crazy. No, that makes sense. I, I would say I went on like a, a pretty similar journey and I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if a lot of people have. So that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. You know, glad you're sharing it on the podcast and uh, we hate capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you yeah. want to add or i just think that's very interesting like i agree with both of mm -hmm. you on that and i I, mm -hmm. I agree with the notion of um i'm gonna call it i'm gonna phrase it a little bit differently than both of you did because i think mm -hmm. uh growing is very very uh is a very prevalent sentiment we've all felt over the last right, six right. to eight months in terms of like what i would describe it as is just getting more educated really getting into the knowledge of what's going on in the, in the mm -hmm. country and in the world and as a whole, um, not necessarily surfacially, but system systemically and like culturally. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I, I just find it interesting that you guys um, coin it as like veering more left, you know, <laughs> um, because as, as polarized as our country is, you know, 
it fucking sucks. Mm. But as polarized as we are, it's just interesting that uh, we tend to still veer to a to a side. Um, sure, that's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you feel like? Do you feel like intersectionality has? Uh, do you feel like intersectionality has a new meaning in the COVID era? Um, that's tricky. That's tricky. Um, I think the answer is uh, yes and no. I think yes because Kimberly Crenshaw, um, her original definition was. Uh, very much specifically about the intersection of race and gender. Um, mm-hmm. Like it was, right. uh, she studied a case where uh, a black woman was applying for a job at a factory and um, this is an was not given the example. job. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, sorry. Um, I'm like, it's a podcast. So I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to interrupt or, or talk over anyone. No, I know uh, people, editing, would, that's terrible. people would much rather hear you for 35 minutes Absolutely. than hear anything we you have are, to say. <laughs> you're definitely like the, the preferred voice to hear. So if you feel like talking, just talk, dude. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. But definitely, definitely go on. Ask for. <laughs> <laughs> definitely expand on that example. Though. I think that's something that people okay. uh, might relate to. Gotcha. But yeah, so uh, this case, a woman applied to work in a man- manufacturing job, um, and this company um, was taken to court because she thought that they had not hired her because she was a black woman. And uh, the court ruled that no discrimination had taken place because the company hires, um, the, the court themselves said, we hire black people and women. But then at a closer look of the um, makeup of their employees, they realized that it was mainly black men that were hired and then white women. And so it made Crenshaw realize that there was a hole in the law and that there was a blind spot that didn't protect black women. And um, that is where the intersectionality of gender and race exists. So long story short, that was kind of the original premise of this whole new frame of thinking. And so I would say, yes, I would say, yes, it's changed because now I think we look at intersectionality with not just um, identifiers that people identify with, but also with great global phenomenon such as a virus or climate change. We can look at identity and then how the intersection of identity mixes with things that happen in the world. So yes, that's how the definition has changed. I would say it also hasn't changed because, you know, what percentage of uh, this definition is just something that we didn't know? Like, what if people have been talking about this, you know, for a long time, but their voices just were never paid attention to? Yeah, that makes sense. Are heard, you know, and like, we're now talking about it and we're like, oh yeah, intersectionality, like climate change is racist, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, people have been saying this for like, for a while. And uh, so I would also say it's unfair to say that it's changed because it probably hasn't. People have probably been talking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting how intersectionality has not only become more prevalent and like people are talking about it and it's become mm-hmm. one of the terms that people use. Um, and I hate to say, I hate to say the phrase on both sides because as polarized as we are, it's important to re- recognize that not only are the leftists, quote unquote, the people mm-hmm. who are, you know, 
leaning left and towards mm-hmm. the non-capitalist um, ideology, not only are they they talking about it, but I think also the others. I hate I hate polarizing people, but the other side is also talking about it and like bringing it up in discussion and and realizing and understanding the intersectionality is a thing regardless of what belief you have, regardless of whether you're right, right. or left, even right. if you are someone who is extremely right and you mm-hmm. are a woman right then and there you have a piece of your intersectionality defined mm-hmm. in front of you and, and you can see how that ties back mm-hmm. to like you were saying how how current climate things affect them how it's mm-hmm. affecting them through COVID, how it's affecting them through hurricanes or anything else losing a job whatever it is i think mm-hmm. people are starting to understand that intersectionality it has they have a part in intersectionality regardless of what their beliefs are and, and yeah no that's a that's an excellent point because if if you think about it, I mean, we can look at Trump's voter base, right? They are predominantly white, um, middle aged, uh, working class, uh, not college educated, and right. so there's like a ton of layers of identity there, and we can start to then look at why did they vote for someone who is college educated, a billionaire. Uh, from the coastal elite right like what like that how did crazy. that happen yeah you know that and like really you can start crazy. to peel back those layers and understand um their perspectives because like rish as you said uh intersectionality doesn't just exist on the left it also should exist everywhere and you know we have to look at look at even being on the right as an identity like as a as something on top of your other identities you know what is the experience of being a black republican what is the experience of being a queer republican the log cabin republicans like they're they're a thing they exist for sure um but yeah no yeah that's a that's a great point um i i need you to make some architecture diagrams analyzing these layers bro we <laughs> we need to see um... exploded axon <laughs> 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 the layers of identity and uh in a isometric 45 degree angle exactly that'd be pretty nice yeah. and, then, and then when you're done teach us how to do it yeah. <laughs> trust me i would just copy some diagram on pinterest which is a whole other yeah know. and then we'd copy you so <laughs> it all go. works there out we go. <laughs> no but that that does bring us to kind of maybe a bigger topic that mm-hmm. i am really excited with uh to talk with you about and that's uh intersectionality in architecture how uh Mm -hmm. maybe we as architects um or just you know regular people in general like can have a Mm -hmm. understanding of how intersectionality affects architecture and what architects can do about it right so did you guys go to the town hall meeting i know but i've heard enough about it to know to know how it was so um i guess to just give a, a a preface for the the dozen Don't say anything that can get us there. kicked out of school, please. Okay, I heard, yeah, I I heard gonna... you were there, Cole. All I heard is you were there. <laughs> I was there. I was there. And I will, I will be cautious with my words. Um, basically, we had a town hall meeting, and our dean um, of the School of Architecture, she has had town hall meetings before. Um, and they kind of were super encouraging because they were a sign of, like, progress, open discussion between the dean um, we had a female uh, dean, and for the first time in our school's history, which is insane that that didn't happen earlier. That is crazy. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's like progress, right? Um, but then we come to 
the town hall meeting this semester. And I think this is where we can really get into architecture and the intersectionality of ourselves. But I don't know if you had a segment for that whole discussion, because that's also really interesting. But um, we've got to make one. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so so th this town hall meeting, I think, was a really good example of architecture and how without intersectionality and architecture, we have failings. So um, our dean is a woman. Exciting, right? Um, but she's Pretty still um, of a different generation. And she is also not a person of color. And so there are different layers to that identity, just as there's different layers to us um, wanting justice and architecture, but also being men and uh, perpetuating that kind of whole stereotype. Um, but this town hall really made it evident that there is a giant uh, chasm between um, the old guard of architecture and the professors and kind of curriculum that have been taught for so long uh, versus what students are interested in now and what students want now. And I think that this town hall, without getting us kicked out of UCLA, <laughs> um, really made that apparent. And yeah, really, for sure. uh, made me realize that, um, you know, you, you can't just say, well, we have a, a woman dean and like, it's fine. Like, you know, every progress is solved. Just as we had a black president and there is a lot of critical race theory and social justice uh, activism and kind of research around what Obama's presidency did to America almost negatively um, because yeah. it made white moderate voters think we lived in this post-racial America. And so I think that can also be said about our school and is that we have a female dean, which is amazing. Again, I literally don't want to downplay that. And for sure. But, you know, that, that doesn't mean that it's all good and that it's all fixed and mm -hmm. that there aren't problems. I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of not only UTSOA and the, and the town hall, but also the country as a whole. And I think I think the, the way I'm going to phrase it is like, we need to constantly vibe check ourselves, no matter how <laughs> yes. pessimistic it might yeah. be, because yeah. you're right. Like no, no intention on downplaying the fact that we have a female Dean or any of those sort of major progressive moves we've taken as a country, as a school, um, or even personally, mm. but we still have to constantly understand that objectively there's a lot of room to grow and there's a lot of room to Growth. Yeah. Like, like you said, that was the first word you used. So I'm mm. going to use that word again. There's a lot of room to grow and continue to evolve into a world that looks a lot more egalitarian, egalitarian um, mm. and just very like equitable for everyone. And so the town yeah. hall, like you were saying, was a great example of seeing that because although, uh, although we have an amazing female Dean, there's still so much more room to grow that she might not understand um, that is room to grow so something that right. three of us right. can see as as a potent future and potent changes yeah. that can be made within the school within the within the university as a whole but like you were saying there's generational gaps there are racial gaps there are gender gaps and all of these things make the lens that we view very very different so the changes that we see are not necessarily what they see and we don't see eye to eye and the changes don't right. happen because of that right. for sure no no exactly 
Um, go ahead. Oh, I, I think I, I had one more thing that I think will help move this conversation forward as well. So there's intersectionality, right? But there's also this theory. Um, I don't know if it was developed by Ibram X. Kendi, but it was at least popularized in his really famous novel, or not novel. It's almost an autobiography, but his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, like um, there's this frame of mind that Americans and the world can have where you are either racist or not racist. And there's so many things wrong with that metric that we have. So first is what is not racist? Like, what does that even mean? Um, <laughs> no one, there's not a definition for that. Right. And then second is um, what does it mean for someone to permanently be labeled racist or not racist? That like almost puts you into a category where your account, your, your actions aren't held accountable anymore. So he then kind of lays out that that scale is bad. And so we can now start to use the language of either something is racist or it's anti-racist and there's no in between. And so this helps us to kind of sift through everything in our lives, everything around us and uh, put it through this new lens. The second thing with this theory is people aren't racist or anti-racist. Like you are a, a constantly evolving person and entity right. that performs a lot of different actions in a given day. And by saying someone is one thing or the other, again, removes accountability. So that allows moderate white voters to then, you know, say, well, I volunteer for my church and donate to um, communities of color and, you know, go on mission trips to the global South, but, you know, supports. But I'm still voting for Trump though. Exactly. <laughs> supports incarceration, uh, the police state, yada, 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 you know, you know how it goes. So what we need to start saying instead is like, there's racist and anti-racist ideas and policies. So those are two things that will always either be one or the other. And then people either adhere to racist ideas and policies or don't. And their actions then go back and forth throughout life between those two things. Um, and it kind of frees you, you know, like you don't have to yeah. be like, oh my God, am I racist? Like, no, I mean, your actions were racist, your ideas are racist, your policies that you support are racist, but like labeling you as a human being as racist, that, that's just, it removes accountability from your actions um, because that's how people can hide behind that label of not racist. Mm -hmm. For sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, yeah, the, you know, theory of like judging the ideas or actions that follow different racist or anti-racist ideals right. makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, I'm not going to speak for everyone in the room, but it's definitely things I've said in the past that I wish I hadn't said, you know what I mean? Right. Um, of course. And that's yeah. just, uh, that's just how it goes. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. I think, I think that idea of like not holding one person, like, or I mm. guess holding them too accountable, uh, to their accountability, I guess, versus, uh, versus having those labels that you were talking about. I think that's a great idea. Um, mm -hmm. makes and, a lot of sense to me. And I bring that up just, just to bring it all the way back. Cause I feel like I really took us far away from architecture, <laughs> bringing that back to architecture. I was just about to say, yeah, bringing that back to architecture. The divide is in the language that I think 
faculty use at our school, it's like we're we're in this like gray, not racist zone. It's like, no, we're not racist. We do all of these things with we have a female dean. We can do whatever we want. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We have um a literal single digit number of black faculty members. We're not racist. We have <laughs> uh, students uh, that are black, indigenous, and people of color. We, you know, talk about climate change. We're not racist. But then if you look at it rather in the scheme of racist or anti-racist, the school changes drastically. Like, you know, architecture as a whole completely changes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the lens that faculty isn't looking at our school in. So then they just see architecture as this like neutral thing that just exists. It's like architecture, not racist. Even though like architecture affects everyone, we gentrify East Side. Um, yeah. If we build something that doesn't care about climate change or sustainability, we're being racist because the Absolutely. impacts of that building don't impact white people. And so, yeah, yeah, it, it, that's just how we need to start looking at architecture through intersectionality and then racism or anti-racism. So that is a good point you bring up, not only looking at, you know, the academic sphere of architecture, but the professional mm. world as well, because that is, uh, that's something that not only affects more people because it's outside the little bubble of, uh, of university, you know what I mean? Mm. But it also is something that, um, in my mind can be impacted more, um, more directly by kind of like, like people like you and your ideals, if that makes sense. I, I, um, I think, and you know, this is just, just solely speaking from my experience, <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel that uh, the professional world of architecture, ironically enough, I think because it's driven by the free market and outside world is a lot more susceptible to change mm -hmm. than, uh, than the academic sphere. Um, so yeah, do you have anything to say about maybe the way the professional world of architecture handles, um, handles like I guess, I guess racist actions and looking at that through mm -hmm. intersectionality and maybe what they could be doing differently. You're getting good at these segues, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Transitions. I so know. Snaps for that. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to fully straight out say I have no idea. I mean, I have, I have some ideas, but this is where I think the learning has to continue for me because after learning all of this, it's like, it's a, it's not only a hard pill to swallow, it is like a bunch of pills to swallow oh, every yeah, single absolutely. day for the rest of your life. And I think we can look at architecture and the free market at one. So at once. So let me, uh -oh. let me drop a little uh, thing that uh, Mr. or Dr. Sorry, Dr. Cindy <laughs> mentioned is that the free market and capitalism as a world economy system was developed and employed and almost made permanent the same time race was invented and made permanent. And he calls them the two-headed monster, two-headed tw twin. He, he calls it a lot of things in his book. But basically, racism and capitalism, he argues, are inseparable. They cannot be, they cannot exist one without the other. And so he almost makes you then try to answer the question where he's like, so what are we going to do? Like uh, he talks about how there's a lot of, you know, white democratic socialists like Elizabeth Warren and right. Bernie who want socialist mixed economies that still have foundations of capitalism. 
Right. And he's like either either capitalism, um, either we're not in a capitalist world right now, um, or the ideals that they have for a capitalist socialist mixed future um, is not the way to go. And so what I mean by that is he's basically saying you can't be anti-racist and still have capitalist ideals that go from this before time, I guess, that we live in to like the after Warren or Bernie enact a bunch of change. And so he's basically saying if their change is just and anti-racist, then we don't live in a capitalist society, meaning that like capitalism could exist after they enact these changes, which is like kind of a hard thing to process and to think about. He's, he's basically saying like, we aren't capitalists now and racist so that in the future we can be capitalist and anti-racist, which is not the case, obviously. We're very capitalist and we're very right. racist. So that then challenges the notion of are Bernie and Warren pushing us far enough? Like, are they, are they pushing us to the point where we <clears throat> can call it our society anti-racist, um, which is crazy, hard pill to swallow. I don't even get half of what I just said. No, no, okay, you you lost me at a certain point, and I'll get back to that in a second. But yeah. one thing, one thing I will say is um, we talked about this uh, just a little bit on the socialism episode with Eli. Basically, the idea mm -hmm. that. The, the democratic socialist idea of a socialism slash capitalism kind of infused structure right. may not be, is, is definitely not far enough, um, mm -hmm. but it is most likely the, the way Eli put it, because he's, he's the expert here. I'm just, I'm just, a, mm -hmm. I'm just a, a peasant reciting <laughs> just scripture a over here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, um, but the way it was kind of explained on the podcast is that that is a transition that is uh that this transition is necessary regardless mm -hmm. but um moving into maybe transitioning into something with socialist slash capitalist mixed ideals is a way to like kind of cleanly you know you know i be clean with the transitions they be trying to be clean with the transitions <laughs> and transition our society just to um just to change things as smoothly as possible i think that is a. Uh, that's kind of the intent of the democratic mm -hmm. socialist party is meant to be more of like a mm -hmm. stepping stone rather than the end goal. Right. Um, right. And I, right. I, I could be wrong about that. Let me know if I am, but that's my <laughs> understanding of it. But the one thing yeah. I do want to ask you is um, you're talking about how it's like a, a two headed snake basically. And, uh, and capitalism and racism are like intertwined. And that makes sense mm -hmm. to me in the current climate and in the way, you know, things have been, um, Things mm -hmm. have been developed literally since the days of the founding fathers and whatnot. Right. Um, but I was going to ask you, and you might have been talking about this. This is the part that it was, it was kind of hard for uh, me to follow. Is it possible that capitalism could not be racist in a vacuum? Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And this is also, I'm no economist. I'm just a, yeah. a mere architecture student who knows how to use the Adobe suite. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's as far as my knowledge goes. But, you know, I think that probably, right? Like, I mean, if we all just, yeah, I mean, you would think, you would hope, yes, that that would be true. And I actually think I can use what you just said, where oh. you're like the democratic socialist 
want to transition away from like, let's say we're at eight because we're not in a pure capitalist society. We're like 80 percent. Right. Yeah. Like we go from like 80 percent, the democratic socialists, and then we go to like 50 percent with 50 percent socialism. So something like that. I think what uh, Dr. Kindy was saying is that capitalism is still there. And so if it's a two headed snake, then racism is still there. Like as long as capitalism, no matter what percentage there is, it's still inherently racist, I guess. Um, and so that then, I guess, answers your question. Is yeah. capitalism in a vacuum not anti-racist? And my answer, based on that logic, is probably no. Yeah, that makes but, sense. You know, I have no idea. That That's a great question. Um, yeah. I mean, regardless, I hate money, so... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, one way or another. Yeah, yeah. I'm still yeah. not with it, but yeah, I was just, I was just wondering. And um, unless either of y'all have anything else to add, I think um, we could probably talk a little bit about maybe our own experiences with intersectionality, and like you were talking about, like mm. viewing architecture through intersectionality within ourselves, and then wrap it up. But I don't know. What do you guys have? To well, say? yeah, I, I think we've obviously been going down a really, really interesting dialogue, and I also. <laughs> I, yeah, so thank you dialogues. for doing this. There's literally like ten different conversations happening at once. Dude, I didn't even answer it's your intersectionality. question. <laughs> it's intersectionality. Like y'all asked me a question, and I literally was like, "Yeah, I'm not going to answer that." And I just talk about some He's other. He's a true thing. politician. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Well, see, I think the beauty with this is that there's so much to talk about. And with that, yeah. with that being said, I think there's also so much that we want to give, that uh, we want to give to our listeners is digestible. So I feel like it, if you guys don't, if you guys don't don't agree with me, you can yell at me. But oh, please don't get but, us canceled. No, 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 no. It's a really cool thing. It's a really cool thing. <laughs> yeah. It's just we take a break and give the listeners just a few seconds, and then we come back. So yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> if you will, <laughs> we can take a quick, however long second break, and then okay. come back. All right, cue extended oddfish intro For the music, first time ever. which I haven't made yet. <laughs> questions i wanted to ask you with the discourse of capitalism and racism uh, intertwined is how do you deal with this maybe in the professional world in this in the educational world how mm. have you dealt with the idea of capitalism and racism together as a as a concept but also how do you deal in general with just getting knowledge like you were saying like we've been talking about the mm -hmm. idea of growth right and so whether it's the last six to eight months in terms of growth and how you've been learning about um, various different things and just taking in knowledge. And like you were saying, eating different pills and knowing which pills to eat and which not to, how right. have you dealt with that? How do you figure out which parts of intersectionality you think are correct or which parts you think are, um, you know, the more progressive ones, like mm -hmm. you were saying, are, do you think capitalism is the capitalism as defined by Bernie and Warren is the right way to go? Or do you have mm -hmm. more knowledge that surpasses what we've been defining as intersectionality, capitalism, <laughs> racism, all of that? 
That's a big Ooh, question. Basically, yeah. basically, <laughs> basically <laughs> no pressure on that one. <laughs> I'm about basically, to get all of us. Canceled. You can say you can say <laughs> you can say anything. Basically, okay. how has it affected you? How how do you feel like you yeah. you put your piece of the puzzle into intersectionality? Well, um, I think I think it. I, I guess you're asking me how, like, what have I been doing? Like, what have I done with this knowledge and how do I look at the world now? Is that kind of what you're If asking that's me? what you want to answer, go for it. My question, <laughs> my question sucks. So you, you take it wherever you want to go. <laughs> um, I feel like, I feel like that's a fair question. You're like, Cole, you're just saying all of this random shit acting like you're a race Eurist, which I'm not. <laughs> and then, you know, telling us that everyone sucks and is racist. Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, after reading this, do I believe in capitalism? Do I think that even voting in our democracy is sometimes somewhat hopeless? And does it even matter? You know, climate change is inevitable. What do we do? You know, all of these questions swirl in my head. What, what do you do with this knowledge? What do you even, how do you even go on living now and taking this really hard? Putting us in sad boys hours. No, 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 no. It's, hold on. You got to let me. Okay. He's wrapping yeah, up to something. No, no, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna come back up because I, I reached a low. I, I reached a moment where I was like, wow, this is insane. Like all of these things are just embedded in our system. Right. Like, racism capitalism you know it's just all embedded and it's like you feel so hopeless and i think the main thing is one it's not your fault i think that's the first thing um and i don't think i want to go into the whole guilt white guilt or even like poc that aren't black or indigenous guilt which is a thing For but sure. like it's not your fault right so you have to first take it at face value you learned all of this stuff it's great you didn't invent capitalism, you didn't invent racism, and you just have to start there, mm -hmm. right? Like, you didn't invent those things. You aren't, you, you didn't create them. Um, and then the next step, I think, is you can then start to look at first your identity through the lens of intersectionality, and which is what I did. And then you can start to look at your actions, ideas, and policies through the anti-racist lens. And then from there, you'll start to notice that your actions change and how you move about spaces and places and how you think about even a studio project changes. Uh, oh, because absolutely. You, yeah, exactly. You, you start to just see everything differently. And I, I think that's how it should go, where you learn all of this, you kind of have to hit that rock bottom and then you just bounce up and you realize you're not at fault, but your actions that you perform every day, continue these systems. So how can you change? And then, you know, from little things such as your studio project, are you focusing on climate change through the lens of like saving the polar bears? Are you looking at it through the relationship between gentrification and the displacement of black indigenous people of color and climate change? Like, are you, you know, um, how do you react in different spaces when different people other than your ethnicity and race are there? How do you react to people who are different genders or sexualities than you? And through these lenses, I think you'll realize the different inherent 
problems that you probably have with these differences. Um, and I think it's an individual thing, like, you know, uh, what you do after you learn all of this and what you do after you realize you need to keep learning, like that's a journey all on itself. And I think short story long, um, <laughs> I think that's where I'm at. Like, I just have had to realize that I need to kind of better define who I am in society and then look at my actions in society and then from those two things go forward with what I do to help society and I think that's like that's my answer to the question you didn't ask <laughs> that that folks my fish <laughs> that is the core of intersectionality that was so well answered but to such a softball of a question by me but that was that was excellent. Now, do you have your own take on how that affected you too? I think we should cut our voices out of this episode and just let it be a cool <laughs> montage the entire no, time. No, 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 no. <laughs> no um, production will be very interesting. <laughs> and, and so, I actually, I actually wanted to loop this back to finally answer your question, Pranav, where you're like capitalism and architecture. What do we do? And I said, I don't know, and then kept talking for thirty minutes to actually answer your question. <laughs> I'm going to say um, I brought up capitalism and the two-headed uh, snake fish. Uh, because <laughs> fish, fish. yes, perfect, perfect. Two-headed fish. Um, because if you think about it, architecture as a profession exists in the capitalist market. So like, I think it's almost impossible to even start to think about how architecture can be equitable if it still exists in that market. Right. So uh, let's take, for example, what a lot of firms do where they're like, okay, the firm and the world could be racist and our board of directors are all white men. Let's just hire a bunch of uh, black indigenous people of color and then we'll go from there, right? Well, like, yes, that's great. That is wonderful, but um, there's so much more. Um, and I think taking Obama is a, as a precedent is a great example. Like putting the um, putting a black man in the office of the presidency of the United States caused a bunch of racist white people to think we were in a post-racial world. Like sure. we, we can't just like representation our way out of racism. And like, I think to even answer what equitable arch architecture looks like, we have to look at it through a not capitalist lens. And I mean, I think we've had great lectures this semester um that's a whole other list of resources that i can't name oh, properly yeah, for sure. right now but you know looking at architecture through a way that isn't just you know based on a developer wants you to build something and then you follow parameters to make their profits the biggest while still making them livable that system will never work if we want to be anti-racist so uh, I think the best way to know what we should do in the profession of architecture is actually to define what we shouldn't do because, you know, Bars. we're in uncharted, yeah, we're in uncharted territories here. Like we know how architecture works. Uh, it's, as I just said, developer cost optimization. You just do whatever you can to make it look pretty. Boom. We gentrify a neighborhood that doesn't work. So we know that's racist. So let's move to the next thing and see, what other system of architecture can we use? So that's my answer to your question. 
45 no, minutes ago. I <laughs> great answer. Definitely <laughs> worth the wait. Um, but no, I've been, I've been feeling that way for a long time too. I feel mm-hmm. like, um, you know, like, like you said, we know the current system doesn't work. And also mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't really understand anyone that can be an architecture student, like a young aspiring architect wanting to change the world through design mm-hmm. and also be a capitalist, right? Like you've right, seen right. from your own industry that that doesn't work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, like architecture, definitely like, like we talk about this in school every day, right? Like it's got the power to, uh, to change people's lives. And you were talking about, you know, like climate change and sustainability focused architecture, what that might look like for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the surface level white people save the polar bears idea versus what it may look like helping, uh, marginalized communities that could be devastated by the effects of climate change. Right. Um, right. so I think, I don't know, I think it's really interesting that, um, that we as a discipline have the power to make those changes, but maybe mm-hmm. not with the policies and the systems that currently exist. Right. So I think just my opinion, uh, as architects, you know, entering the workforce, we kind of have to like consciously fight against mm-hmm. those systems, knowing what they are. You know what I mean? So right. right. spitting bars. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> glad you said what you said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I want to play devil's advocate there for a second. Uh-oh. Just because Please. just because I think well in a way it's it allows us to dig deeper. So mm-hmm. um the idea that both of you have been talking about with the with the combination of capitalism and racism and you know mm-hmm. basic basic means of knowledge of where you're talking about if we build something in a in a low income area and whatever and the, the gentrification mm-hmm. happens right then and there, that's a form of racism. And so it's very interesting to immediately tie that straight into racism but i'm intrigued to see um I, i'm gonna pull up like a, a social social culture example here like from we, we watched the show woke right yeah and so there's a scene in the show where the main guy uh is he he's a he's a black man and he's a cartoonist and he's doing he does cartoons that are like animated characters yeah. and so these characters and his cartoons don't necessarily have anything to do with racism or anything about black culture or anything to do with solving that issue at that that Mm -hmm. cultural issue but um it's not something that he's necessarily unaware of as a human but Mm -hmm. in in one of the scenes basically he gets approached by another uh by a black woman and she says as a black man why don't your cartoons try to address some of those issues why don't you try to speak Mm -hmm. up for black people why don't any of your cartoons speak on any of the issues that black people have to deal with and so Mm -hmm. his his response is i'm not trying to change the world like i'm just i'm just drawing cartoons to draw cartoons Mm -hmm. and make make a living for myself because that's at the basis, that's what he's doing. He's just doing art that he likes and uh, he's making money so he can, he can have a life for himself. But I think that's an interesting concept because is there a way we can separate this idea of every single action is tied to racism or is that embedded in our nature of societal structure, systemic structure, capitalism, whatever it is, is that mm-hmm. embedded where every single action we do make within capitalism or not within capitalism is it is everything tied to racism Mm. i'm just questioning it basically (laughs) so i have a i have a fat quote for you oh Um, Oh, no esteemed late uh writer tony morrison you guys know yes yes Mm -hmm. love her so you brought up this uh black cartoonist who is literally just trying to live his life right and now we look at the intersectionality of gender within the black community a whole other question that none of us are qualified to talk about but 
there's this excellent quote from Toni Morrison that says the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over and over again your reason for being. So we can look at this example you provided and start to see this man literally just wants to make his art, right? And he's like, why? He's facing this exact problem. He just wants to exist. He just wants to make his art. Um, but racism exists. And so there's that tension and that pull where he like wants to better the world for himself, but he also just wants to make art and just wants to exist, right? Yeah. And so then you can look on the other side and look at white straight male artists and look at how many barriers in form and composition and just how we think of visual expression, how many barriers they've broken because they've haven't, they haven't had to think about race. They haven't had to constantly, you know, as, as Morrison says, explain over and over and over again your reason for being. Um, and so I think to answer your question, yes, there is not a single thing, I think, in our world that exists in a vacuum. And I think every action relates in some part to race. Um, does that mean it's productive to go throughout your life and just think about uh, the type of handrails you select for your second semester in architecture school <laughs> and how that affects the racial construct in America? No, you know, like that's exhausting, but mm -hmm. I'm gonna say, yes, I think every thought and action can trace itself back to race. Now, whether you should or not, that's up for debate. Solid answer. I got nothing to say to that. You agree? Like, that makes, okay. makes sense enough. to me. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to look at, it's interesting to look at one, we were talking about intersectionality mm -hmm. within capitalism and professionalism and all that. But I think mm -hmm. it's also interesting to talk about uh, intersectionality as a social uh, construct because yeah. bringing, bringing intersectionally back intersectionality, that's such a hard <laughs> word. Why can't they just make it like an easy word, but bring <laughs> bringing that back to today's climate uh, with COVID and with mm -hmm. the radical bipolarization that we have within the country and yeah. how far apart we are right now. And I'm not going to put blame mm -hmm. on anyone like that, <clears throat> but, <laughs> but we're, we're just so distant and like spread from two sides. And I feel like intersectionality um, has very different views in today's, in today's world. So mm -hmm. going back to what I was talking about with, intersectionality being viewed from the Republican side is also very good. And, and being, being viewed from all sides is good because people need to understand that it's not something that exists just on the left. Like you said, Cole, it's mm -hmm. something that exists everywhere and is embedded into mm -hmm. our systemic nature, our cultural nature. But do we feel like intersectionality has its drawbacks in certain ways? Maybe mm -hmm. um, I don't want to suggest anything off the bat. I, I want to get y'all's opinion on that to see if mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you can sort of find fault in the own system that we believe in. Cause I, mm -hmm. I also believe in it, but like I'm playing devil's advocate. So I want to see, are there, are there flaws in the system that we can still progress in and, and make it more inclusive, more progressive, mm -hmm. anything like that? Like, are, are you kind of saying, do we need intersectionality in every single faucet of progress? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. And also intersectionality as a definition, do we feel like, is it an accurate definition? Hmm. I see. So from the right, actually, I'll devil's advocate your advocate, I guess. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, 
from the right, actually, there's been a bit of pushback because there is the whole uh, kind of hate for identity politics, right? Yeah, yeah. Big yeah. buzzword in the past two decades, identity politics, right? Um, and if you think about it, intersectionality literally is just about identity and about the politics of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been some pushback from the right of, on whether that's productive. And I think that we can look at other great civil rights leaders, um, such as MLK, who brings up that in order to heal, you have to you know, expose the wound, right? And so I think this notion that intersectionality either isn't the right term, isn't the right theory, may not be needed, um, is interesting because it feels very colorblind to me. Yeah. It feels very like um, identities, let's just erase all identities and then we're fine, right? Like <laughs> then we live in a vacuum and everyone's fine. It just so happens that these certain people that we won't identify just happen way farther back from the starting line. And then a bunch of other people start way past the starting line, but they don't have identities. So it's fine. That's just luck, right? Yeah. And I think I think intersectionality is a, is the the diving board. Like you use that to identify the systems we live in and then you just don't sit in that. You don't just like revel in this is my identity. This is intersectionality. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. You then you keep going and then hopefully eventually everyone reaches this post-racialness if, if you will, if you will, I don't want to get canceled for a hoping for a post-racial future, but you'll get to the point where maybe not post-racial or post-identity, but everyone's identity is actually seen and because it's seen, everyone's equal rather than no one's seen and everyone's equal, everyone's seen and everyone's equal. Okay. Okay. I can, I'm following a little bit of what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. I want to use two words here to see if they actually define what you're saying. So one mm-hmm. being the, the, the descriptiveness of intersectionality, right? Like you're saying, it, mm-hmm. it definitely allows people to find who they are. Mm-hmm. And from, like you were saying, from the other side, the identity politics allows p- other people to define other people as who they are. So bringing together this whole hierarchy of this is who you are, this is what kind of intersections you have within your identity, there's the descriptiveness mm-hmm. in it. And then I think there's also the prescriptiveness in it in which Mm. it says that because you are these things, because your description Mm. is as such, you are prescribed as this. Your life is prescribed as your, 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 uh, what do they call it? Privileges are prescribed as this because of your description. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that productive? Well, I don't know if it's productive, but Mm. it exists. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. let's, let's not act like some people are like put, let's, let's not act like they aren't put in better spots because of the because of their descriptions yeah. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that's like in a vacuum like cole was saying mm-hmm. in a vacuum that may not necessarily be the case but the way things are right now the way things are developed and shaped right now that's just how it is so i feel like it um it should be recognized because it's it's doing a disservice to those people if it's not you know what i mean you're right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no that that's a really good point and the language super important uh if there's anything I learned from this summer is that language is everything. Like we need to 
to equip others and everyone with the language to fully and wholly talk about race and mm-hmm. uh, queerness and gender, all, all of these things, mm-hmm. because we live in this like race, racist or post-racist or not racist, like that language doesn't work anyway. So I appreciate your language of like descriptive and prescriptive facts. And I think I have to agree with Pranav with that, like, you know, um, it exists and yeah, I mean, great devil's advocation. I, you <laughs> me. Yeah, I, I mean, like, yes, yes and no. And I think we'll just have to see what happens um, when we utilize intersectionality. Yeah. It's just the, uh, the inner Ben Shapiro and me, like an idiot, but <laughs> um, I, like the only other thing that I want to play devil's advocate with, because in my little bit of reading in this, literally, mm. if you did a page of reading, I did one word. But, <laughs> um, but in my little bit, I, I realized there's a couple things that are um, that have strewn, strewn, whatever the word is, that have veered intersectionality off of its path of what uh, Kimberly initially defined it to be. Mm. And I find that really interesting because not only has it veered off path over the last dec- uh, several decades of, from the time she defined it, to now, but also in the last six to eight months where we've really become very, very bipolar uh, or polarized. And um, and the definition of intersectionality is now also turning on its own head, like, like you were mentioning, Cole, with the conservative side or whatever side you want to call it, saying that there's a conspiracy theory of victimization. So mm. when you take, uh, you know, the descriptive side of intersectionality and you say, people can describe themselves as a certain thing and then basically victimize themselves because they're not necessarily privileged in the same way because Mm -hmm. they're not uh, given the same opportunities because of their description. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that description comes because of our knowledge and our establishment of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that something we see? uh, You guys see that as prevalent or an issue or anything like that? Dude, you might have to break that into smaller words for me. I'll be honest. (laughs) I, Wait, wait, let me, let me see if I, I, I'm, I'm getting this right. Let me, let me see. So you're, you're questioning, um, from a perspective that feels very conservative, um, in nature that perhaps intersectionality treads dangerous water of, um, giving people strange and somewhat uncomfortable authority to be victims and to be victimized and is that an issue today slash do we see it as being an issue right is that what you're asking yeah yeah and i'm in no way saying that uh because the goal of intersectionality was and is never going to be to try to absolve white culture and white power and replace it with black power that was never the intent that's not the intent right now and that's Mm -hmm. not what i'm proposing either but i'm uh all Mm -hmm. i'm uh, all I'm Ben Shapiroing about right now is is uh, what are the other implications of intersectionality that we see within culture that can veer the opposite way and sort of victimize mm. people. Mm. Uh, I that is great. I think I think we actually can look at it within the frame of intersectionality and like. Um, uh, we can look at it from the perspective of, oh my gosh, there's so many. I mean, we could look at it in the perspective of like, I'll speak about, speak on what I know, like 
the queer culture and, and the queer community. Um, like white cis gay men have kind of been to the forefront even so much so that they actually have been able to to some degree rejoin society and separate themselves from the queer community as a whole and kind of like almost heteronormalize their homosexual life that nice. makes any sense <laughs> no, no, that makes like, a lot of sense yeah like normalize it because they've had so much privilege that it's like they're just like oh no we're good we don't need to fight for rights anymore to some degree mm. and so there's a lot of people within the queer community who feel like victims and then there's a lot of pushback because white cis gay men are like but i'm still gay and like i still went through shit um, and so I think you see that tension. I'm not, I'm not supporting cisgendered white gay men by saying that they were reverse victimized, but I'm saying the tension between the uh, black indigenous people of color queer community and the white queer community, that like victimizedness that's like bouncing back and forth, like mm -hmm. the white community is like, but I was a victim to this, but then the people of color that are queer are like, but we're victims of the queerness and we're victims of you being racist towards us. You know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of, I think what you're talking about um, where it's confusing and, you know, then in those lenses, does intersectionality even work? Does it break down so far that you can't really get a clear idea of what to do and what justice looks like. Um, and I think that is where you get someone who's paid way more than I am to talk about it. <laughs> okay. That's well, where <laughs> I'm not, I'm not paid any more than you, but I will speak on how a really like a really similar thing mm -hmm. to what you're talking about is actually kind of had, I've seen the opposite effect in my life because mm -hmm. Um, because what you're describing is not that far off from, you know, the, the, uh, cis male Indian American, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, it's so easy. And that's where you get your, that's where you get your brown boy Republicans from. You know what I mean? It's so mm -hmm. easy to be like, Oh, I haven't felt these systems. Like, what are y'all complaining about? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's not obviously not to say that, um, that Indian American men like don't experience systemic oppression or don't experience like it's, 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 uh, it's a very different form of it, obviously, mm -hmm. but that's its own thing. But regardless, I will say that like, we're often like a lot more privileged, um, or at least a lot less, uh, discriminated against than, um, than maybe, you know, being like a, like a gay Indian man or a South, uh, or a South Asian woman or anything like that. Like the fact is we've got it just that much easier. And so to mm -hmm. me, like it's been, um, to me, it's been more like using intersectionality as a framework to be like, okay, like mm -hmm. you are, you know, like you're, you're an Indian man, but also look at these people, you know, from your same community, but are also part of so many other different marginalized communities that maybe right. if this thing isn't affecting you, it's probably affecting these people because they're part mm. of a whole different demographic that you have no idea mm, about. Facts. You know what I mean? So if mm. anything is working the inverse way and, um, and making people like me more aware of those differences to right. kind of to right. carry ourselves in the best light, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, so I guess then to answer you, Rish, it's almost like maybe the, the complex nature of victimization is okay because there's so little conversation about, uh, any of the things we're talking about right now <laughs> that maybe we need to make those mistakes because that means something's happening. Bars there. See, there's a reason that this episode has been as fire as it is. And, and I applaud both of you for answering the, the shitty question I have, but the way that you guys, the way that you guys answer that was really, really on point for the direction that I wanted to go because with the intention of in, uh, intersectionality not being we want to replace the system with a system that puts other people in power, which, which that was never the intention. That was never going to be uh, um, the outcome of intersectionality. But like both of you mentioned, which is a very important point, intersectionality gives us that language and that medium for us to recognize right. and understand mm. these systemic uh, implications that people have because of their descriptive and prescriptive natures of intersectionality. And like, like you said, Nav, like Bars. you said, Cole, uh, <laughs> it, it works in that way. And it, it is what it is. Like you guys said in my last question, it is what it is. And it's, it's very important, regardless of how much the other side wants to um, oppose intersectionality, say that it's creating a caste system, say that uh, white, cisgender, male uh, people are at the bottom of this caste system and black, queer uh, me, uh, right. women yeah. are at the top. You know, like that's yeah. just, that's not what it is. So uh, as, yeah, not, yeah, as, yeah. as many Ben Shapiro's... Uh, you can find to say that it doesn't matter. That's not the right. intention of intersectionality. The intention, right. like I already said before, is for us to understand and acknowledge that these mm. implications, uh, whether it's in capitalism, whether it's in socialism, social culture, mm. whatever it is, these uh, racial, gendered, any of these implications exist. And I'm glad that even conversations like this on the podcast <laughs> are doing their part in helping us understand it and progressing that right. conversation. So right, right, right. Yeah. Snaps and to I mean, both of you. <laughs> yeah. As, um, as, uh, what, uh, MLK I'm paraphrasing here again, uh, where, uh, equity and equality will feel like, um, oppression to the oppressors. Mm -hmm. Um, like you said, that whole like cis, men or white men are somehow at the bottom in this system like that's not true like we're yeah. just leveling the playing field but it will feel not good yeah if i mean if you're on the top obviously <laughs> yeah, yeah it won't feel great, it won't feel great. <laughs> well i mean it, it's factual too like socially people mm -hmm. might hate on might hate people based on the hierarchy of intersectionalism like you might hate the people who we think are at the top like it, it's not a caste system but like you right. said, people who might hate people because of the hierarchy of intersectionalism uh, don't understand that it's systemic and historical. So that hate really means mm -hmm. nothing because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you're a white, uh, if you're a white cisgendered man, uh, a straight man, you're, you're, you're still favored. You're still going to get that job over that, over that black woman. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I hope that doesn't get me canceled. Yeah. <laughs> There's so <laughs> many things in this podcast that I'm like, there's some hot <laughs> fucking takes all over the place. Yeah, yeah this is going to be a mess editing, bro. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, at the end, we're going to, yeah. Anyways. Um, we keep yeah. this one on private just for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shit. This is, this is a, as much as we are going to hate on it, though, it's been insanely productive, insanely no, productive. Yeah, yeah really definitely nice. great episode. Yeah. Um, we could probably wrap it up if neither of you have anything left to add. 
don't know. I had one thing, and I don't, I don't want this to keep us crazy much longer. Like I could talk Uh-oh. about this forever, but I, we haven't actually touched too much about the intersectionality of like us, right? I'll and block out another hour for the night. That's important. <laughs> I, I think this could be a ten-minute break. Number two. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> you know I mean? Like this would be quick. This would be quick. You know, like. I mean, you, you, uh, Pranav, you lightly, lightly touched on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your, your, uh, intersectionality of being South Asian, being a male, um, being heterosexual and cisgendered, you know, like, uh, sure. there's all of those things on top of that. And without overstepping my bounds within the South Asian community, there's also so many other, uh, you know, identities i'm sure that i don't even know like religion colorism absolutely all yeah. these things right um and they're all at the shit. point for sure yeah <laughs> all at the point of where you are you know that's the episode title there's layers to this shit <laughs> like an onion you know <laughs> up a animated uh kids movie yeah, yeah right. for real is there is there a point that you want to touch on uh in terms of your layers i guess <laughs> Yeah, tell us your layers, bro. <laughs> um, I think there's funny things. Um, I think um, as being a cisgendered uh, homosexual male, I think I was like, oh my God, I'm gay. And then I was like, I felt so oppressed. But then I realized after meeting so many other members of the queer community, I was like, damn, I am not that oppressed <laughs> and then <laughs> that then that then gets into like the like you know is oppression quantifiable which I don't think it is but mm-hmm. um you know I think it's really interesting because uh I think the dichotomy between women and gay men specifically is really interesting um just because you know uh, there's been that whole trope, like, you know, women objectify gay men, the GBF uh, gave us friend for the non-queer audience out there. <laughs> um, you know, like this weird objectification. But then on top of that, men, gay men are still men, you know, like yeah. we're, we're still pretty high up there on the totem pole. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's just been a really interesting dichotomy of like, you know, I'm like, damn, it does suck being a, vic- a victim of homophobia. But then at the same time, I'm like, damn, I can really be sexist at times. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting. And I think, I think why I wanted to bring this up before we closed is uh, it's important to understand where you are in this world in order to even have the conversations with others. Because if you don't know, then what's the point? Like, yep. if you don't know where you are, then what's the point of uh, having these conversations. Um, and I think that, um, understanding where you are is, as I said earlier, the first step of doing something about this kind of fucked up world we live in. So I, I challenge all of our, all of our hundreds of listeners to, uh, look inside themselves and look at their experiences and, um, define them uh, for themselves so that they can uh, redefine the experiences that others have in the world so i think you should take over the podcast honestly 
<laughs> he's like talking to the audience too have we ever had a guest do that no no and every time he says something I'm, we're just left speechless like what the fuck you flatter me too much here. that's funny all right rich is there anything you want to add no man i'm just gonna be simping for cole for the rest of it so i think i should cut it off oh. <laughs> all right well with that being said we better wrap it up. Thanks for that uh, extra last part, Cole. And thanks for, thanks for, you know, giving us as much time as you have. I'm sure you're not expecting it to run this long. Um, <laughs> but thanks for coming on here. Thanks for being prepared. Thanks for spitting some hard facts. Um, we, we appreciate all of it. And, you know, to all our listeners, I hope you're able to take something away from the episode. I hope you, I hope you don't cancel us, but that, that depends on yeah. the editing, really. So <laughs> we'll see about that. Don't cancel us, please. I swear we had nothing but yeah. the best intentions. We are all cisgendered men and we apologize. <laughs> like Exactly. So we make mistakes too. Yeah. <laughs> this is us victimizing ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But hey, at the end of the day, regardless of what we said, regardless of, uh, what people take away from this it's a good conversation to have regardless of uh the mistakes we made in conversation or not <laughs> it's a good it's a good stepping stone and like we said at the beginning of the episode too uh, i hope this inspires this conversation inspires other conversations and other future episodes and anything else you can take away from this i for this, sure it's been fun for me so and if you want to be a part of this conversation, you as the listener, make sure to tweet us at hashtag oddfish, respond to us on Instagram, DM us, text us, text Cole. We'll leak all his personal information. Oh, you, <laughs> Please stop. Don't. Actually, yeah, don't I'm text us anymore. Mail. He yeah. runs this now. <laughs> no, no. I don't want any of these. This episode is a closed system. My charity has been fulfilled. My tax deductibles in the mail. Like, this is... I don't know if you'll get your sticker, bro, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, thank folks, you thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Cole, thank you for joining us. We'll see you, you next time it. on uh, another canceled episode of Odd Fish. <laughs> <laughs>